Today is Pentecost Sunday. It's the day where we remember and recall the inaugural event when Jesus poured out his Holy Spirit on his early disciples. And correspondingly, it's the day he birthed the church, the capital C church, the one body of Christ that he has. Now, I grew up in an Assemblies of God Pentecostal church. And for us, Pentecost was as big a day as Easter and Christmas. It was huge. And on Pentecost Sunday, often the focus was on the individual experience with the Holy Spirit, which is uh, good and needed. Um, you should have an individual uh, relationship and experience with the Holy Spirit. But often it stopped there and it didn't uh, include its wider and fuller meaning, especially in the context of Holy Scripture and the role that the Holy Spirit plays in Jesus' body, the church, you and I, together. And so today and next weekend, I want to share with you the wonderful message of Pentecost, uh, the gift of the Holy Spirit, what it means for your personal walk with the Lord, um, but also what it means for Jesus' church, His people. Because remember, church is not a building or a service or a podcast or an online stream. God's church is literally, by definition, God's gathering or God's assembly of his people. That's what the Greek word ekklesia means. It literally means gathering or assembly or the collecting of God's people. And so if we are the gathering of God, the church of God, and we are, then uh, the Holy Spirit is not only a gift to us and for us, but it is empowerment and fuel for the mission of God that's given to us, which is to spread his good news to all people, to bring the kingdom of heaven everywhere it isn't a reality. Now, before we get into the real practical and fun implications of receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit, we must begin in the beginning. And I'm actually going to spend the bulk of our time today building a foundation for you to understand Pentecost in biblical history, because it's crucial to understanding and then applying what we find in Acts 2 on Pentecost Sunday. And we'll do that next week. And so here's a confession of mine to give to you. I spent 32 years in a Pentecostal environment and denomination. That's three decades. And I never knew the theological importance or significance of the day of Pentecost. And the message I received was that God loved everyone, but he really loved those who have the gift of tongues. The message I'm sharing today uh, with you was never shared with me whenever I was a kind of a proper Pentecostal parishioner. You like that alliteration, don't you? Uh, much less whenever I was a, here's another one, a proper Pentecostal pastor. Can't help myself. And so uh, I, I don't have any ill will or bitterness towards my Pentecostal roots. I'm so grateful for that movement and that part of my story. I wouldn't have any other way. So please don't hear any of that. Um, but I do want to communicate to you just how biblically illiterate and ignorant um, I was, and often we are, when it comes to Pentecost and the role of the Holy Spirit in us. So if you have a Bible, uh, grab it, and I really want you to see uh, this with your eyes on physical paper, if it's possible, uh, mostly so that you'll know where to find it, underline it, study it, chew on it, and share it with others. And so to learn about Acts 2 and Pentecost naturally, turn with me to Genesis chapter 11. That's right, uh, to understand one of the significant moments in the New Testament, we have to first look at the Old Testament. We're gonna read the account of the Tower of Babel. Now, if you're scratching your head wondering why we're reading about Babel on Pentecost, that is my point. You can't understand Pentecost in Acts 2 if you have no memory of the Tower of Babel, because Pentecost in Acts 2 is God literally 
reversing what happened at the Tower of Babel. Sadly, most Christians that I've come across don't know this, and so I'm gonna remedy that today if that's you. If you have a Bible, let's go to Genesis chapter 11. We'll read just the first nine verses. Now the whole earth had one tongue and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come let us bow down. No, they didn't say that. They said, come let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen, bitumen, however you say that, for mortar. Then they said, come let us bow down and worship the Lord. No, they didn't say that. They said, come let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. That should be hilarious to you if you picked up on it. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. He was thinking about a rover on the moon. I'm sorry, he was thinking about he was thinking about a rover on Mars. Probably not. Uh, Come, let us go down and there confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Hear the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. In Genesis 11, you have people building a city for their own glory. And so God gives them different languages and scatters them across the world. Now, I'm a maker. I'm a builder. I like to make things with my hands. My motto motto is, uh, maker's going to make. And so a natural question that comes to my mind as a maker is, does this mean that God is anti-building, anti-masonry, anti-city, or anti-skyscraper? Not at all. That's kind of silly. Uh, What the Tower of Babel represents is it uh, presents to us the story of a unified humanity using all its resources to establish a city. Is is that bad? No, that's not bad. But but here's, here's where it's bad is that the Tower of Babel presents to us a unified humanity using all its resources to establish a city that is the antithesis of what God intended when he created the world. That's the problem in the story. The tower is the symbol of human autonomy, and the city builders see themselves as determining and establishing their own destiny without any reference to the Lord. Just 11 chapters into the story. Now, going back a few pages to the beginning of Genesis, they were told to Go, multiply, fill the earth with God's name, God's image, God's reputation. Here, they find a land. They want to stay. They disobey. They don't go. They stay. And they are concerned with their name, not God's. If you look at verse 2 and 4, you can see this. They say, come let us build ourselves a city and a tower. Make a name for ourselves. Now contrast that with what the psalmist says. Come let us bow down and worship See the humility in, in that phrase and, and that we're there to make God's name great worship. These people say the opposite. Come, let us build something for ourselves and make a name for ourselves. They're valuing security for themselves, 
not sacrifice to God. They're valuing praise for their name instead of praise of God's name. This is all about human independence and self-sufficiency apart from God. The builders believe that they have no need for God. Their technology and social unity give them confidence in their own ability, and they have high aspirations, literally high aspirations, to construct a tower with its top reaching the heavens. Then there's the hilarious irony in verse 7 of God coming down just to see the tower that reaches the heavens, which should evoke laughter if you pay attention. You know, they're, what they're building is in vain. You know, it reminds me of Psalms 127, unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor, labor in vain. You know, they, they're building a tower to get to the heavens, and God who's actually in heaven is like squinting down there and saying, we need to go down and see what a, that little speck is that they're building. It's hilarious. Now, I could quickly move on to Acts 2 here, and we could get on with the what does Pentecost mean for us, um, but I do feel the need to slow down and let this story of the Tower of Babel sink in and sink into your memory so that as we talk about Pentecost in Acts 2, you have a starting point. Um, I love how you can illustrate the gospel in the Tower of Babel. Every Bible story whispers Jesus's name and hints of the gospel are in it. Uh, one, a great practice is to take any, any passage of the scriptures and to uh, preach the gospel from it. And uh, Genesis 11 is super fun to do that. You know, in Genesis 11, uh, all people are trying to literally lift themselves up to get into heaven. In John 12, verse 32, Jesus said, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. There's some Tower of Babel imagery there. You know, we don't need to lift anything other than Jesus up to draw people to Jesus. We need to come and bow down and lift up Jesus. In Philippians 2, Paul tells us that it was God who came down in humility. At Babel, man in his pride was trying to go up to God. The gospel is that God in his humility comes down to us. In Proverbs 18, 10 says, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. There is tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. Babel is not the tower that saves us. It's the name of the Lord. You know, further in Psalm 95, it says, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. You know, the sin of Babel and the sin of us today is that what we want, which at the end of the day is really under everything, access to God, his presence, shalom, peace with God, that's what everyone is aching for, whether they'll articulate it that way or not. Um, what we want, we try to build and manufacture and strive for, be it the New Testament's language for that. That's the sin. Because what we want, what we need, God actually gives us freely in Christ because of his humility. There are two attitudes. Come, let us build up and do it on our own. Or come, let us bow down and surrender to Jesus. The gospel message is not that you have to do the right thing or believe in the right thing or the right school of doctrine to find peace with God. The gospel is not about doing anything or even having all of your theology and questions squared away and ordered. The gospel is about what Christ has done, not what you can do. You know, the gospel is the literal announcement. It means news. So the gospel is the news, the announcement, the message of the availability of God's kingdom to you in Christ Jesus. The gospel is the announcement of the availability of God's kingdom to you in Christ Jesus. It's an invitation to open yourselves up to the something, the, the, the relationship with God that is being given to you because of Jesus' work, not your work. 
Now think of the thief on the cross, if you're familiar with that story. He had no time to go get baptized. He had no time to apologize for his thievery. He had no time to repay back and repair all that he had stolen. He had no time to do any good deeds. He didn't have any time to do a Bible study and learn theology. The only time he had was to hang next to Jesus and drown in his own blood, which is exactly how he died. And yet Jesus shares the gospel, the good news, the announcement with him. Jesus shares the news of the availability of God's kingdom to him. He says, today you will be with me in paradise. That's Jesus speaking the gospel to this thief. He's announcing to him that because of the work he's doing in real time, the kingdom of heaven, paradise, the presence of God is available to him because Jesus is lifted up literally on the cross. He is drawing, starting to draw all men to himself. There's so many points you can drive home from this lesson on the Tower of Babel. You know, where do you need to bow down and lift Jesus up? Uh, how do you forget about God and make it all about you all the time, just like they did in Babel? Uh, where do you have pride and insist on lifting yourself up instead of lifting God up? Where are you trying to build a way to God instead of allowing God to come into you? you know, where are you uh, trying to make a name for yourself instead of lifting up God's name? You know, we'll come back to these in a moment and we'll have these questions um, on the screen at the end of our time for you to reflect on. But I want to encourage you to not divorce yourself from the story of Babel as if you and I don't try to do the very things that they did. You know, they forgot God's call in their life. They forgot that he was the Lord. They forgot what he had called them to do. They found a, a smooth, comfortable place to settle in, and they began to leverage all of their intellect and their resources to build something that would make them comfortable and that would stroke their ego, and, and, and they were doing everything in their effort, in their way, in their time, completely cut off from the purposes and the mention of the Lord. We build Tower of Babel's every day, my friends. And it's anti the gospel message because the thing you actually long for, God gives you freely in Christ if you'll receive it. Let's finish by turning to Acts. Now, we won't do a whole lot of excavating here. We'll do that next week, but I want you to see how Acts 2 is really the reversal of the Tower of Babel. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia and Phygra and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. What's amazing about this is that when God's presence comes down, when the Spirit falls, 
all the scattered and divided people based on their cultures and nations, tongues, languages, ethnicities, are brought together under Jesus. The mighty works of God are communicated and understood, and there's amazement and astonishment. Some are perplexed. There's ridicule, there's praise, crowds, languages, fire, wind, noise, it's quite an event. Some ask, what does this mean? What it means is that in God's way, he is reversing the Tower of Babel. He is in his humility coming down and bringing all people to himself to mark for the church the beginning of a new season, a new chapter, that we would look very differently than the world does. Now, next week, we'll exegete Acts 2 and look at what's going on. We might look at Peter's sermon, which is amazing. Uh, we'll definitely look at the end of Acts 2 to uh, see the type of church and community that the Holy Spirit creates and fuels. Um, but at this stopping point, I want to encourage you to open yourself to the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. You know, Pentecost, and really every day, is a fitting time to open ourselves anew to the indwelling, infusing presence of God. I want to encourage you in this season and in these coming weeks, and even right now, to ask the Father to fill you. Ask Jesus to breathe on you. Ask the Spirit to intoxicate you. Yes, intoxicate. You know, take some time now or in the coming days to be still, to retreat from the busyness of the noise of the world, to pray, to log off. Most importantly, make some time to receive from God. Freely seek the benefits and the gifts that Jesus promises and that Paul describes in the New Testament. Above all, and this is the most important part, ask for his love to increase in you. I encourage you to learn and memorize a simple prayer that I pray every day. Open my hands as a sign of receiving and surrender, and I say, come Holy Spirit. I give you permission to come into my life today. Come Holy Spirit, three words. That's all you need to memorize, pretty easy. You've already got to memorize. I want to encourage you to um, pray that, especially in times of the day where you feel overwhelmed or you feel like God's presence isn't in you. You can stop, even if it's for 60 seconds. You can open your hands, you can close your eyes, you can take a deep breath, and you can say, come Holy Spirit. The thing about the Holy Spirit is he's a gentleman. He's not going to kick down the door. You have to consent. You have to give permission. That's how this works. Now, there's a lot of ways you can do this, and, and really part of the fun in the journey is exploring and finding what works for you. It's probably mostly unhelpful to prescribe to you specifically what you should do in order to find um, uh, kind of rhythms of getting refilled. Um, but I'll share with you one way that I do it, one creative way, not to prescribe, not to tell you to do this, but to maybe open your imagination to like how kind of fun and life-giving this can be. Now, everyone's different, so you got to take this with a massive grain of salt. But when I feel empty, when I feel tired or weary or discouraged or angry or frustrated or, or you know, anxious or whatever, when I feel like, man, I need more of God's presence. Um, what I've learned is when I'm in creation, sometimes that's as simple as going on the river walk by the pearl. And whenever I am allowing um, the praise of God through music into my life, and when I'm walking, 
I don't fully, I kind of understand why, but like when I do those three things, when I get away from my desk, when I get out of here, when I put my phone on silent, when I put on some worship music, sometimes United Pursuit or House Fires or Phil Wickham or, uh, you know, whoever, uh, lately it's been Maverick City or, um, uh, gosh, who's the, Jay, who's the, who's the, um, that I don't have much mission house. Yes. Yeah. Mission house. Just like, usually it, 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 it's just, I'll find a song that really resonates. I'll put it on repeat for like a hundred times and I'll go get in creation and I'll go for a walk sometimes for 10 minutes, sometimes for hours, sometimes for half a day. And I can physically in my body feel God pouring his spirit on me. Um, I'm an extrovert, so that works for me. If you're not an extrovert, that might not work for you. Um, if if you want to learn more about that, there's a great book called Sacred Pathways by Gary Thomas that explains that there's nine different pathways based on people's temperament that they tend to meet with God. Some people meet with God and feel his presence in a cathedral. I'm a pastor. I don't feel that. Um, <laughs> cathedrals are... Uh, it's a workplace for me. So I, I typically don't ever feel God's presence in this like personal way in cathedrals. I do sometimes, but but often I get, when I go get by creation, if there's a mountain and a lake, oh man, it, that's my cathedral. And so um, I want to encourage you to, if you're like, well, how do I get filled with the Spirit? How do I get refilled every day? Um, how do I welcome more of God's presence? Like tangibly, um, you know, reach out to us. We'd love to, to talk with you about that. Um, um, but if you want to go to resource, Gary Thomas has that great book, Sacred Pathways, that helped me understand why creation and like walking and why music really helps me. Um, but I've learned over time that not making it a formula, but whenever I make time to log off, get away from work, get outside, and when I worship, when I lift, when I bow down and lift my heart to God, I tend to just get washed in his presence, right? So I want to encourage you to however that works for you, whenever, in what ways, to experiment with that. And, but, but more than anything, the, the, the what and the how isn't as important as having a heart that is open to the Lord and just says, come Holy Spirit, I want more of you. I want everything you have for me. You know, whether that's just peace, or whether that's like, uh, you know, the gift of tongues, like we see in Acts 2 or whatever, uh, I encourage you, don't seek gifts, seek the giver. Lift your eyes to him. And, you know, as Jesus says, the wind blows where it pleases. And so you, you, sometimes we can't put God in this box and say, I want you to do this. We don't do that because the wind blows where it pleases. Do you feel empty? Are you weary? Are you afraid? Are you riddled with anxiety? Friend, you need more, not less, of the Holy Spirit in your life. You need the power of Pentecost, God's presence to come down into you in a tangible way. I want to encourage you to be filled and to be infused with his presence. And, and may the fire and the wind and the water of God's Spirit be poured out onto you and inside of you on this day. I want to pray for us, uh, but I want to offer to you a prayer that we will uh, put on the screen and we will uh, put it in the description of this video or this podcast, whether you're watching or listening, 
Um, for you, if you if you need a starter prayer to kind of help you with this, I'm going to put it there. And I found that it's a very helpful thing to work your prayers off of. And of course, you can take this, put it in your own words, and and play with it and pray from your heart on this. Uh, but I found it this week. I thought it was beautiful, and it's a wonderful um, prayer to help you get started in asking the Holy Spirit to come. So I'll pray it, and then we'll pray again. That's what we do here. We, we're a church. We pray. Father in heaven, together with your Son who sits at your right hand and your Spirit who dwells in all who belong to you, fill us this day and every day with your holy and loving presence that I might live in a manner pleasing to you and readily act as your witness in this world. Abba Father, we thank you for the gift of your presence. Thank you that you do not ask us to build impressive things to get up to you, but that in your humility you came down to us, and that when you came down, you drew, and you continue to this day, to draw all people to yourself. In every parts of the world, all throughout history, no matter the ethnicity or the race, no matter the economics, no matter the education level, from Tijuana to Buckingham Palace, to Australia, to Alaska, everywhere around the world, throughout all history, you have drawn sons and daughters to yourself. Jesus, we thank you that you are the baptizer of the Holy Spirit and that you bring our hearts to life when you baptize us in your presence. Pour out your presence afresh today upon us, upon your people. In this day, in this hour that we live, God, we know more than ever we need more of your presence, not less. And Holy Spirit, we thank you for being gentle, for being our comforter, for being our friend, for being the boldness and the fuel that we need, for being the comfort in hard times that we need. We say, come Holy Spirit, we welcome you, we receive you, we honor you. Forgive us of where we have grieved you. Forgive us where we have messed with the unity that you have created. And Spirit, we ask that around us you would create more and more life in our neighbors who don't know you. It's in the name of Jesus we pray, amen.